Well, we have been looking at this book and what it teaches us about Jesus, who he is, and how his authority is manifest to us. And along the way, we have been challenged over and over again with the question, how do we respond to Jesus and his claims? Who do we say that Jesus is? How do we respond to Jesus? We've seen that some people respond with hostility, that Jesus challenged the narrative that they had come to expect. He did not live up to their ideas of what a Messiah would look like, and so they responded with increasing antagonism until we saw at the end of last week that they had committed in their minds and hearts to destroy Jesus in some manner. Other people responded with with awe. They were amazed. And they followed him around because he was a celebrity. Other people responded in faith. How do we respond? You see, Jesus even now elicits response. People respond to Jesus. In every context I've ever been in, people respond to Jesus and his claims. Yeah, you can say his name in passing and no one bats an eye, but as soon as you actually start talking about Jesus, really... There's a response. How do you respond? And unfortunately, what happens in churches is that there are plenty of people who think, I have responded positively to Jesus because I haven't rejected Jesus. And they think that just because they have an interest in Jesus, that they have party to Jesus. How do You respond to Jesus. This passage shows us a distinction between the response and the actions of the crowd, that nameless, teeming, swarming mass of people who respond positively to Jesus and to those whom he names his disciples. There's a distinction there. And my great burden today is that each and every one of us would examine our own hearts and inspect our own souls and take inventory and ask yourself the question, thus far in my life, has my response to Jesus mirrored that more closely of the crowd? Or has my response looked more like that of the disciples? And so, with that question in mind, we are given this passage that culminates in the naming of the twelve. And this is a great, great list for us. And we may think, oh, this is just a historical thing. This is just a historical interest point. Oh, he named twelve disciples. But brothers and sisters, recognize this. The New Testament says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles. The apostles are the men who went out and ultimately became extensions of Jesus' own ministry. And we owe our New Testament to their labors. We owe our own belief to their labors. God worked through them. And so when we read here in Mark of their appointment, we get a precious look back at the foundation and start of this global enterprise called the church. 
You see, every organization, every organism starts small. Here we see, out of this teeming mass of people, Jesus names 12. And then it grew. And it grew, and eventually, even though he keeps the 12 special, he ends up sending out 72 on an evangelistic trip. And when the upper room happens in Acts chapter 1, we see that there are, there are, there are more than, there's almost 500 followers of Christ, not in the upper room, but they have named about, about 500. It starts small and it grows and it becomes a global phenomenon. Now, starting small is a precious thing. So we are about to move into a new building. And you know what this is? I took it down from the back to bring it up here. I played a little joke on the deacons that were back there. I, I told them I'd see them next week, and they were like, but from what I've heard, this is an incomplete list of the charter members of this church. But I think it's a precious thing that this church has displayed all these years the names of those members who were part of this body when it got its start. Think of how things have gone and grown and just how God has worked since that time. On February 23rd, 2003, this church became a particular congregation. And these are the founding members. And it's a precious thing to hold on to that because God is at work and he continues to do amazing things. So back here, he's named the Twelve. And it's an amazing thing that what he has done with this church since those days, is it not? Now we're going to look at the composition of the twelve in a minute because in the composition of the twelve, we get a foretaste of the composition of the church. And we see a picture of the kind of unity that we should have. In officer training today, we talked about the communion of the saints and how each of us is individually called into relationship with Jesus and we have union with Christ, but that also means then that we have union with each other. We have a communion together. Sometimes it can be hard to realize that, but I think that when you see the composition of the twelve, we see how radically different people were brought together and called to forge a singular identity and focus on a singular mission. But before that, my question to you is, does your response to Jesus thus far look more like the crowd or the disciples? What do I mean? Well, if you look at this, these verses, it, it begins in verse 7 by saying that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and the great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea. Idumea is the Latinized name of Old Edom. So Edom. So people were coming from outside of Israel on the south, and then it says Tyre and Sidon. These are cities in modern-day Lebanon. So they were coming north, south, east, and west from outside. He was a regional celebrity. Everywhere he went, he had a crowd. And the important thing to remember about the crowd is that the crowd surged. We've just had a hurricane. Now, we fortunately didn't get subjected to it, but if you have friends or family down by the coast... Or if you have seen the video footage, you see those storm swells and how the water surges in a storm like that. So you have the water of the ocean, 
and there's an external stimulus, and that causes the water to rush up, and it, and it overflows whatever its normal banks are, and it causes damage. But then once that storm or that stimulus is taken away, the water recedes back to where it's supposed to be. Okay, The crowds surge. Whenever there's a stimulus going on, they flock to Jesus. Whenever there's something amazing, they flock to Jesus. But in contrast, the disciples abide. The crowds surge, disciples abide. People, the natural man, will flock to Jesus because he's interesting, because they have some perceived need that he can meet. Now in this passage, it specifically links their flocking to Jesus in verse 10 with the fact that he'd done healing. And they wanted healed. They were not interested in his message. They were interested in what they could get out of Jesus. And so they flocked to Jesus whenever they had an issue that he could address for them. There are so many people like that whose interest in Jesus comes and goes like a storm surge whenever they go through some trial of life. I've seen people dead as a religious doornail until all of a sudden they lose a job or, or their spouse does something to them or, or, or whatever, and all of a sudden, oh, i got to run to Jesus. And then what can they get out of Jesus? And then as soon as that need's been met or the problem's gone away, their interest recedes. But disciples abide. Notice how he took them with him. They went with him. They were with him through the high and the low. And so my question to you is this. How has your response to Jesus been thus far in your life? Do you go through times of enhanced religiosity when you have some sort of acute need and much of the time your life is just perfectly fine without Jesus and then every now and then you have some acute crisis in your life that makes you think, oh my goodness, Jesus has the answer. I'll go, I'll go get what I need and then he'll make my life better and then I'll just go back to being me. Or do you recognize like a disciple that your good, your life, is bound up in his so that you follow him and you're faithful and you remain with him no matter what. Do you surge or do you abide? Second, uh, in part of this, in this passage, we see that not only does the crowds, do the crowds surge, but the crowd wants a piece of Jesus, but disciples are called to be with Jesus. You see, these crowds, they're pressing in on him. We see that Jesus has to get a boat because it says they might crush him. These people have no interest in Jesus or his well-being. They want to know what can they get out of Jesus? What can they get from Jesus? So he has to put a physical barrier to keep the crowds at bay. And that's what crowds do in regards not only to your own life and stuff, but in regards to Jesus. They don't have any interest in him or his well-being or anything. What can I get out of Jesus? Have you asked yourself that? What can I get from Jesus? What can you do for me? And you don't really care about his interests, 
or the good of his people. All you're concerned about is meeting my need and I'm going to press and press. That's a crowd mentality. And so, the disciples on the converse understand that they are called to be with Jesus. Their interest is not so much what acute need do I have that Jesus can meet so I can go back to living my content life. Rather, a disciple knows that they are called to be with him. The essence of our faith is relationship with God. And so Jesus, he sits up on the mountaintop and he calls the twelve to him. He calls those whom he wants. There are so many people who think that their religious life exists at their own discretion. That we determine our own, we're the captains of our own vessel. But a disciple understands that we were called by Christ. So he didn't have to choose us. I'm not doing Jesus a favor. He called me for my good. And that posture of understanding that I was called, and that I was called so that I could be with him. Isn't that interesting that it says that? It doesn't say they were called so that way they could learn from him. He doesn't, it's just a very generic to be with him. Now in that, we see an example of discipleship. Yesterday at the men's breakfast, we talked about uh, how we are called to be disciples who disciple others. And so a key aspect of discipleship is just being with Jesus. You see, the crowds, they didn't want to hang out with Jesus. They wanted to press in on him, get their fix, and then get gone. You know, every day that they were away from their fields is a day that the fields weren't being plowed or, or harvested. So they, they didn't have time to mess around with Jesus. Just, just heal me of my problem, Jesus, so I can get back to my life. But disciples are called to be with Jesus. You see, that is how we grow. That is how we become the fishers of men, as we sit at the feet of Jesus and fellowship with him and learn what he's like, learn who he is, learn how to think and act like a, like a citizen of the kingdom of God. Now, we don't get to sit at the feet of Jesus physically, okay? But you were called to be with him, to foster relationship with him. Now, we can do that, but do we? Do we take the time to engage in conversation with God? Do we read His Word? Do we reflect and meditate on Him? Or do we just go about our busy, bustling lives, checking the God box every Sunday, or every other Sunday, or once a month, whatever it may be? Or do we recognize that a key aspect of my calling is to be with Jesus. There is no substitute in your life for growing in Christ, for being a productive Christian, as just communing with your Savior. If you're not communing with Him, you're not growing. And they were called to grow. Because you can't go out and then act with authority like the, like the disciples do and preach and exercise His authority over the demonic powers By not having a vital relationship with Jesus. Remember what Jesus says? I am the vine, you are the branches. Remember how he says, you know, apart from me you can do everything? You don't need to rely upon me? Oh wait, he doesn't say that, does he? 
No, apart from me, you can do nothing. So we need to be with Jesus. Don't forget that the essence of your Christian discipleship walk is one of relationship with Jesus. It is good, it is right, it is necessary to gather together corporately and to worship God as a public people. But that is not a substitute for your daily communion with Christ. You must be with Him. Do you pray? Do you read? Do you reflect? Do you sing? Some of you may not be singing folk. That's okay. But in the private of your own car or wherever it is, has the joy of the Lord touched you so that way you have a response that you want to praise Him? So, now, there are so many people who act like the crowd. They're not interested in relationship. They're interested in a transactional religion. You know, I show up, I touch you, I, I, I get the grace I need, and then I can walk away, and it's, and it's all free and clear. They don't want relationship, they want transaction. That's not the way it works. There are so many people sitting in church pews even who they think that they have right relationship with God simply because, like the crowd, they've responded positively. Think about it. The crowd didn't respond negatively. They're thrilled Jesus is there. They're not questioning who is this man, who does he think he is. They're thrilled that Jesus is there. There are so many people who are thrilled that Jesus can do something for them. I'm reminded about at the end of the book, Pilgrim's Progress. You may remember that Christian and Hopeful come to this river. They're nearing the end of their journey. And the river, of course, is a symbol for death. And all that stands between them and the celestial city. They can see its gates. I mean, they can see the king's grounds. They can see the trees. It's beautiful. And all that stands between them is this river. And they make it across, okay? And then they're greeted by the heavenly host. And then he turns and he observes this man that they've encountered a few times on their walk called Ignorance. And Ignorance, they, when they first encountered him, they questioned him because he didn't get on the way through the narrow gate, the wicked gate. And he's kind of dismissive. Oh, it doesn't really matter. I mean, all that matters is I'm on the way. And throughout their dialogue with him, they're like, how do you know that you're you know, on the way? How do you know that you're acceptable to God? How do you know that you have right relationship? And it all just kept coming down to, my heart tells me so. I know, I know, I know. He had no grounds other than it makes me feel good to believe it. And so Christian watches ignorance come up to the river. Now his own experience of dying had been, had been challenging, had been scary for him. He questioned whether or not God really loved him. But it says that when ignorance comes up, there's this boatman named Vain Hope. And Vain Hope makes his crossing easy. And so then ignorance walks up and no angels are there to greet him and he bangs on the king's door and they're like, where's your scroll, which is your, your, your declaration that you're 
one of the kings. I don't have it, but, but I, I sat, I, I was there, I, I saw the king when he would pass through in our towns. You know, I ate and I drank. And of course, it ends with him being cast into the abyss. And then Christian's, John Bunyan's last comment is, and I saw that there was a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. And I awoke, and behold, it was a dream. There are so many in the crowd who think that they have responded positively to Jesus, but all they want is a transaction. They just want to press in and get a piece of Jesus. They just want what Jesus can do for them. They're not interested in growing and learning. They're not interested in the fact that they have to give up their own agenda. You see, it's safe to be a part of the crowd because you get to show up when you want and you get to ask for what you want and then you get to go back to your life in Idumea or or Tyre or Sidon or wherever it is you're from. No demands, no obligations. I just get to have my life. But a disciple... Why, when Jesus commissions them, he gives them a new life mission. And so a disciple we see is someone who not only is learning from Jesus and is relating to Jesus, but is living his life for Jesus. These disciples, they're called from all sorts of walks of life, but now they are appointed to learn from him to adopt him as their role model, and then ultimately to live their lives on mission for him. And of course, as we learn from history, every single one of these men, with the exception of John, dies a martyr's death. Every single one of them. That's incredible. These were not like the followers of Muhammad who took over the whole North African continent with the sword. These are men who went to the sword. These are men who went to the fires, who went to the lions, who went to the cross because of Jesus and living for his mission. These apostles come from incredible backgrounds. We see that there's Matthew, the tax collector, there's Simon, there's Andrew, James, John, fishermen. A few of them appear to have been carpenters or, or labor craftsmen of some kind. Nathaniel or Bartholomew tends, we believe, history tells us that he was, he was a, more of a scholarly person, not necessarily on the Sanhedrin, but perhaps in training. That's why even when he's introduced, he's studying the scriptures. And of course, there's Simon the Zealot. Talk about a ragtag motley crew. You know, and I understand that we have differences. There are differences in the body. And we have a hard time getting along sometimes. But just think about, just in, just in Matthew and in Simon, I wonder how much energy it took to keep them from each other, from fighting each other throughout his ministry. Simon the zealot. The zealots were almost like terrorists. They were so rabidly anti-Roman that, that after, they per, after they kicked out the Roman garrison for a few years, they would kill anybody that they thought had been a colluder with the enemy. 
They hated Rome, and they hated any, any Jewish person who they thought had helped Rome. So here's one of them as his disciple, and then here's Matthew, the tax collector, agent of Rome. Do you think that might have caused a little hostility? Probably. But yet we don't read of their conflicts, do we? No. This body of disciples was radically different. They had different personalities, James and John. Man, they wanted to call down the thunder on a town for not accepting them. Other people tend to have been kind of skeptical, like Thomas. We have Peter, of course, who was incredibly brash. Hardly a group of people that you would have thought had the potential to change the world, but they were committed to Christ. And they heeded the call of Christ to have relationship with him. And then they were faithful to respond to that calling, to go out then and to give their lives in his service, thereby setting in motion the wheels of of, of history that have turned and brought us to this point today. So, how have you responded to Jesus thus far? Have you been like the crowd? I'm not against Jesus, but I'm only invested so far as my interests can be met. Or have you responded like a disciple? It is my hope and prayer that as we continue this series, as we finish up the preparations for the new building, as we move in and start a new year, it's my prayer that we will increasingly model discipleship, that we will increasingly focus on our union with Christ individually, with its implications for how we have communion with each other as a body, so that we can become disciples who increasingly make disciples. Wouldn't that be an awesome, awesome thing? But as long as we're interested in a transactional religion where I get, my, I get my little bit of Jesus and I get to go and live my own private life, that's really, really, really hard. As you leave here today, ask yourself, has my life and my response to Jesus thus far been more like the crowd or has it been more like the disciples? Let's pray.